the legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Life doesn't have a pause button. That's why Capella University's FlexPath learning format lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them if something comes up. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference for you at capella.edu. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. I went to Hill Country Middle School in Austin, Texas in the 80s. I have some very vivid memories. Most of them are about social embarrassments. But I also remember a lot of what I was taught in my state-required year-long seventh grade Texas history class. I'm not going to say I remember Texas history because what I was taught and what Texas history is are two different things. In class, we were taught that Texas wasn't really part of the South because it didn't have a culture of slavery. We were taught that the only reason Texas fought alongside the South in the Civil War, or as we called it, the war between the states, was because of Texas's deep belief in states' rights. We were taught that the Alamo was a battle fought for Texas independence, that Texas fought to get out from under the thumb of Mexican tyranny, as represented by the evil dictator-slash-president, General Santa Ana. And we were taught that while Texas lost the Battle of the Alamo, it was a valiant stand to buy time for the rest of the army, who eventually won at the glorious Battle of San Jacinto, don't mess with Texas, et cetera, et cetera, the end. As you probably already realize, none of those things are true and all of them exist to support a larger narrative of white supremacy. Our guest this week, Brian Burroughs, is going to help us understand that narrative and we're going to learn what really happened at the Alamo. Our discussion is based on the best-selling book, Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, which Brian co-wrote with Chris Tomlinson and Jason Stanford. Burroughs is a writer and historian, as well as the author of over a dozen books. He's been a correspondent for Vanity Fair and the Wall Street Journal. He's coming right up. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to go through what I know as the biggest myths of the Alamo and you to give me a true or false and maybe explain if it's a false. How about that? You got it. Okay. Number one, the overall point of the Texas revolt against Mexico was freedom. This is a myth. (laughs) What was the Texas revolt really about? Well, the the great myth has always been that uh, the Texians, the American colonists in, in the province of, of Coahuila, Mexico, were uh, being oppressed by the Mexican central government, um, and that they did not have freedom. In fact, they had more freedom than any other citizens in Mexico in that they were still allowed to own slaves. 
we argue in forget the uh, the Alamo and uh, any number of academics have argued the exact same thing before us that the driving force behind the the Texas revolt was slavery that you know the only reason American colonists came to Mexico was to make money and they did it doing uh, the only thing they knew how to do which was uh, farm cotton and to do that back then they believed um, they needed slaves and um, so the entire Texas economic model, the entire reason that American colonists came to Texas was to farm cotton picked by uh, the, uh, the hands of the enslaved, enslaved African-Americans. And for the Mexican government, however, um, slavery was not an economic issue. It was very much a moral issue. Uh, the New Mexican uh, nation that uh, was given birth in 1821 was founded on liberal principles in large part. That was the reason, uh, many, the, the driving force behind the Mexican Revolution. Um, and uh, and they were offended by it. They thought it was a, a crime against humanity. In part because something like two-thirds of the Mexican nation at that point was people of mixed blood. Yeah. And so they found this personally abhorrent at a time when the rest of the world, Britain, pretty much all you know, Western nations, were abolishing slavery. So Mexico was on the right side of history here. And looking back, the Texas colonists very much were not. So Mexico throughout the 1820s was constantly abolishing and, uh, slavery and saying, okay, another year or two, but then that's it. No more. Can't bring any more of this type of thing. Uh, uh, uh. And you know, if you go back and you read Stephen F. Austin, the father of Texas's correspondence, you know, half of it is about, he's arguing with Mexico City about, look, guys, we really need the slaves. There won't be a Texas with, I mean, he's actually in a couple of his letters say, all that's wanted in Texas is money and Negroes are necessary to make it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every time Mexico would say, ah, uh-uh, we're not going to, no more, you know, uh, Austin's colonists would start to go home. They would start to start packing up. And, you know, cl- you know after, over time, they put away their suitcases and they, they got out guns. That's basically what happened. All right. Another myth or maybe it's right. All right. um, My next maybe myth. The Alamo was an important outpost worth dying over. Well, I could argue this several ways and academics have. We've argued that the the Alamo, uh, which was in today, then San Antonio, still San Antonio, um, had some significance in that it lay along the primary route that any Mexican army, including Santa Ana's, would take uh, in its effort to retake the province of Texas. Um, the Alamo edifice itself, which was a, not a fort by any means, it was an old Spanish mission with 12-foot stone walls around, you know, it's practically it the size of a city block. It was enormous. It, was, it, was, it had no conventional... Um, defenses. Uh, did have a lot of artillery and it had 180 uh, colonists there, uh, but it was all but indefensible. And certainly in the face of 6,000 Mexican troops, it was indefensible. But the fact is, the de facto head of the Texas army thought it was indefensible and further thought that San Antonio was not worth saving. He wanted the army to fall back and defend along the rivers, which run, you know, basically north south down to the coast for whatever reason, and it's always been one of the great 
mysteries, and I'm sad to say we can't really clear it up, is why William Barrett Travis, and to an extent his co-commander Jim Bowie, wanted to stay and fight there. Uh, because a lot of people thought it was a silly idea then and now. My understanding from the book is maybe they just didn't quite believe there was going to be 6,000 soldiers coming for them. Well, that's a different issue. Of what, There's one issue of whether you defend the Alamo at all. Right. And then there's the issue of why the heck did they stay there when they knew 6,000 Mexican troops were on the way? The fact is the germ, the, the foundation of the Alamo's appeal has always been that these 180-odd Anglo colonists, you know, decided to fight there for their freedom against Mexican <laughs> oppression. Uh, one of the great myths is that the commander, Travis, drew this line in the sand and say, all men who want to uh, defend their freedom step across the line. Well, A, there was no line. Obviously a myth uh, created 60 years later by an amateur historian. But more to the point, the defenders made no conscious decision to stay there they basically got trapped because they ignored every one of dozens of awardees. You know, it's like, it's like you're in Times Square and they're getting a call every five minutes saying, look, Santa Ana, they're in Central Park. They're on 52nd. They're on 40th. <laughs> they're on 48th. They're on 44th. Dude, they are on 43rd. And Travis and Bowie just never left. They just, so the idea that there was some heroism or some choice in this it's just, all, you know, all joking aside, is not backed up by the historical record. It's not backed up by anything. Let's, let's get to those 6,000 troops. Um, Santa Ana, the leader, general, uh, the commander of the Mexican forces, was a bloodthirsty tyrant determined to subjugate Texans. And please forgive me for saying this, but it is part of the myth. And take their women. Oh, golly. Take the women. Such an early. <laughs> it is part thoughts. of the myth. Well, it, it, it was a stalwart of some of the earliest racist Alamo movies going back to the 19-teens. Look, Santa Ana was no saint. He was the elected you know, head of state of Mexico. He was coming not to invade anything. He was coming back to retake Mexican land that was being taken by these illegally by these American colonists. He, as a general uh, was prone to executing prisoners, as, let's be clear, international law allowed him to be in that what the Texians were doing was um, actually uh, technically called piracy, and you were able to execute pirates. In fact, Mexicans had done this against uh, uh, Anglo invaders from the U.S. 20 years earlier. Santa Ana had done it a time or two around Mexico, so the guy was no saint. But the idea that he was a dictator, no. That he was somehow bloodthirsty, no. That he was somehow oppressing these people. The fact is, Santa Ana knew, like everyone in Mexico City, that these Americans were kind of a problem. And they were always bitching about, about slavery. And, and so he actually allowed it. He allowed immigration. For, for Pete's sake, he gave them a two-year moratorium on paying taxes. In fact, the trigger to all this fighting was when he had the temerity, if you can believe it, to say, OK, two years is over. We're going to go collect those taxes. You agreed that, that we would That's start right. having taxes now. The, 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 the analogy <laughs> that we use in the book is imagine today if America opened up uh, interior Alaska for whatever reason to Canadian colonization 
and Canadians poured in with their hockey rinks and their Tim Horton stores and their poutine. Um, and when we try to collect taxes, they refuse. When we send in tax collectors, uh, they kill a number of them. When we send in uh, troops to arrest these people who have killed our people, they go raise an army uh, of Canadian adventurers and they pour in and, 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 and start a revolt. That's exactly, you know, if that irks you, that's exactly how Santa Ana felt. Everyone who fought on the side of Texas at the Alamo was an Anglo fighting for Texas independence. Well, no, and this is a <laughs> this is a long and sad story because one of the points that we try to make in the book um, is the the contribution of Mexican Americans who lived in Texas at the time. They are commonly called then and sometimes now Tejanos has been criminally overlooked by um, Texas historians. And really only in the last 20, 30, 40 years have there been academic efforts to reclaim um, uh, their importance. And their importance begins by the fact that they were the people living there when the Americans came in. They were the Americans' allies in commerce, in business. They lobbied the Mexican government for them. They were their friends and allies in every conceivable way. Um, in part because they didn't much like the central government either. Um, ultimately, once the revolt uh, is raised, um, uh, Tejanos fight, a lot, not every Tejano, but many of them fight alongside the Texians against the Mexican government, famously led by uh, uh, the, um, uh, the Tejano commander Juan Seguin. And then afterwards, what happens? The, the, and this is, it's really a kind of betrayal. The Tejanos are run out of most of Central and South Texas. Their lands are confiscated. Their landmark, their, their land stock, their livestock is taken. Seguin himself is chased out of uh, San Antonio by clearly racist uh, Anglos, chased from farm to farm, and eventually, you know, is forced to, to, to flee to Mexico. And, you know... The reason all that matters is, you know, Texas is about to be majority uh, uh, Latino right now. Anglos are now in the minority, 41% of, of, of Texas population. And for years, this whole narrative, the, the narrative that got told in the wake of the Alamo was essentially was all Anglos against all people of brown skin, which just was not ever anything like the truth. And if you talk, one of the main points we made in the book, and I'm not sure that we're not among the first, you know, writers to float it out there, is how incredibly harmful this has been to the identity of Mexican Americans in Texas, who feel that they've just been, it's, it's almost been used to haze them, to oppress them, if you want to use that word. You know, the, the, the classic thing being the big Anglo bully, he goes by the, the little uh, Tejano guy, you know, punches him in the arm and says, remember the Alamo guy. You know, it's, a, it's always been used that way. If you talk to um, Tejano intellectuals, they will basically say to you that if you accept that the Alamo story is the Texas creation myth, our Garden of Eden, then the idea that Tejanos killed Davy Crockett is the original sin. It's the mm -hmm. thing that has been used to marginalize and, yes, oppress them for generations. And We'd like to believe, trumpeting our little horn here, that we're taking some small step 
um, toward correcting those notions. Yes, let's get to the so-called heroes of the Alamo. Jim Bowie, Bowie Knife Bowie, was sick during the fighting, but he died propped up in his cot, pistols in hand. We actually don't, can't be sure how he died inside the room. We, we, every account says that Bowie died inside the room where he was uh, uh, very, very sick, uh, uh, apparently with cholera. Uh, The Mexican accounts suggest that he was just shot while he laid there. There are some accounts that he was taken out and, you know, thrust up on bayonets and and mutilated. Again, I, I don't think anybody knows any of that for sure because we don't have enough confirming accounts. The thing about Bowie that that matters most when you're trying to reassess Texas history is not how he died, it's how he lived. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because Jim Bowie, you know, he began his career as uh, a trader of not just slaves, but illegal slaves, that is those brought in from Cuba uh, during the 1800s. But where he really kind of becomes uh, a public figure, he's he's already a public figure after a a famous duel called the Sandbar uh, duel in uh, 1827. But it's after that that Bowie basically makes an effort to um, to uh, 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 he falsifies thousands of pages of document to claim land across Louisiana and later in Arkansas and is found out. And there are you know all sorts of federal investigations. This is why Bowie uh, <laughs> uh, ends up in Texas. Where, like a lot like, of outlaws, like right? a lot of people yeah. fleeing things in. Let's, yeah, in, let's in, not use the word outlaw. Maybe, maybe this is too generous, right? Like we 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 lionize the term outlaw here in Texas. So uh, look, a lot of a lot of people. The, the thing that people were fleeing most uh, that came to Texas was debts. Uh, Travis uh-huh. was fleeing debts. That was a fairly in the days where debts could get you uh, in prison. A lot of people were were uh, were fleeing debts. Bowie came to San Antonio. He did fairly well in that he married the daughter of one of San Antonio's richest men who bankrolled any number of ridiculous gold mining and other schemes that never got anything, uh, never got anywhere. And then um, the the father and the and the wife were both killed in a cholera epidemic. And Bowie ended up, you know, it's an overstatement to say that he was a homeless drunk on the streets of San Antonio, but he was just a couple of notches above that. Um, he was a figure of fun in San Antonio, where they called him Jim Bowie the Drunkard. Um, mm. so he was still famous, especially regionally famous. He's a great fighting man, but locally everybody knew that he was down on his luck and his best days behind him. The story ends, of course, when the revolt is is raised, and of course Bowie is one of the first people that they call because he has, you know, a, a reputation as a great fighting man. Davy Crockett. Maybe King of the wild frontier. Yes. We, we are certain. Let me tell you what I, what the myth is. Yes. Let, let's, let's go with the myth. And this actually, I found um, the one myth of the is earth. Silly. I can't believe anybody actually still believes it. It's one of those myths. We don't deserve any credit for knocking down, but you go ahead. Uh, okay. I found one of the early accounts, one of the, one of the early um, uh, sort of, I, I don't know if it was self-consciously the myths of Texas, but it's a manuscript. And so. Crockett fought to the end, even after he ran out of bullets, using his rifle as a club. He survived the battle and was brought before Santa Ana, who ordered him executed. And this I get to quote the fun part. But before the Mexican army could act, Crockett, 
entirely unarmed, sprang like a tiger at the throat of Santa Anna. But before he could reach him, a dozen swords were sheathed in his heart. Well, I cannot say that that's the dominant myth, but if it's not, that should be. That's a heck of a story. That's an awesome one, right? <laughs> but the, the myth is always that, that he went down fighting. Okay. Uh, that's the way it has been in the, in the John Wayne movie and in most modern uh, accounts that you know, want to ham up and heroify David Crockett. In fact, we know from the Mexican accounts, and I don't think this is pretty much any longer disputed, um, that he was captured. No matter, we don't know if he, how he fought or anything, but he was captured and executed. Uh, in fact, um, that myth kind of arose only during the 1950s when Crockett became such a big deal because of Disney movies. Um, uh, but you know, the, but the figure of Crockett before he got to Texas. I'm not sure how much new we have to say to say about that because it's been said by others, you know, much better. But, you know, Crockett, we sometimes forget he's very famous in the 50s and 60s in, in, in the 20th century. The fact is he was one of the five or 10 most famous people in America at the time. He was one of the first national celebrities, in part because, yes, he had been a politician, a, a, a congressman from Tennessee. But you have to remember the thing about Crockett is he. He was much more than just a politician. He was a politician with a shtick, which was a very thick frontier accent. And yeah, I'm in Washington, but I'd really be out rather <laughs> shooting, shooting bars and, and fighting with the engines, this type of thing. Everybody knew it was a shtick. They, they, everybody loved it. You know, he, people wrote books about him and there were plays about not the Davy Crockett, the real guy, but the fake guy. That was the famous Davy Crockett. Long story short, he gets voted out of office. Apparently, he's much better at shooting bears than uh, making votes. And like a lot of people, including his peer, Sam Houston, also of Texas, um, he immigrates to uh, Texas in hopes of starting a new life. And in Crockett's uh, 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 case, clearly thinks that, you know, if Texas is somehow severed from Mexico, there might be a presidency, a vice presidency, a secretary of state, that he could get something. But let's be clear, the only reason he's in the Texas Army the only reason he's at the Alamo as a private is you have to join the army if you want to get the whatever it was, 100 acres of free land uh, to become a citizen. So he goes down there thinking, yeah, you know, there's there's nothing much going on. Uh, the fighting's all over. Uh, and Crockett gets trapped and dies at the Alamo just like everyone else. Those are the ones I literally came up with off the top of my head based well, on my Texas history Well, and some experience. Of the, a couple of the other ones are to do with the battle itself. The fact that somewhat that they did make the choose to they did choose to fight to the death. We now know from Mexican accounts that twice in the last forty eight hours, Travis offered to um, surrender. So he was not fighting to the death. He wanted out. Uh, and Santa Ana rejected these uh, offers because he wanted these guys dead. He wanted them mm. made examples. And then, really, the goriest, but apparently true from all the accounts we now have, is the idea that they all fought to death in, in their place, which every book over 150 years will tell you. We now know from Mexican accounts really first, uh, first identified as important in the 1990s that between a third and 60% of the uh, defenders of the Alamo essentially cut and run. Um, mm-hmm. that nobody's suggesting that this has anything to do with cowardice, but the fact is they were outnumbered something like, you know, 4,000 active, active attackers to something like 200 defenders, they were in, 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 the, their only choice was to, in, in essence, run. 
out into the open where they were killed to a man by Mexican lancers. So almost everything about the battle that plays up its hero, its heroic elements is difficult to find supported in the facts of history. You know, it didn't even occur to me to ask about whether or not everyone at the Alamo died because that's so foundational to the myth. That's just, that's why, why if anyone has any kind of idea of any heroism, right? You're like, well, at least they all like died fighting, but no, again, quite understandably people went for it. Well, if they could. I, we, we think the best number is about seven or seven people are said to have surrendered and mm-hmm. been captured, including presumably Crockett. Uh, they were all they were all executed. But it's funny. The the there's this idea that's always been around that we'll never know exactly what happened at the Alamo because they were all killed, which is the most dominating mm. Anglo centric thing you can say. They didn't all die. Just the Americans died. There were still (laughs) thousands of Mexican witnesses there that wrote things down in memoirs. We have any number of accounts of exactly what happened, many of them having surfaced in the 20th century, from from the Mexican viewpoint, as well as the actual after-action reports from that day and the next day. So the idea that we can't know what happened at the the Alamo is demonstrably nutty. Mm. We're going to take a quick break for ads, and then we're going to come back and talk about, of course, the, the, the star of the Alamo story, Phil Collins. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Wild Alaskan Company. You're used to having a lot of choices when it comes to what you eat, but it matters where your food comes from. Get your nutrition from nature. The Wild Alaskan Company sources wild-caught seafood from Alaska and the Pacific Northwest. Wild Alaskan Company delivers high-quality, sustainably-sourced, wild-caught seafood right to your door. Choose from salmon, whitefish, or a combination with different specials every month. Each shipment contains premium, wild-caught, individually-wrapped portions of delicious seafood that's ready to prepare and easy to cook. Wild Alaskan Company seafood is how nature intended it to be, always wild, never farmed or modified, and it contains no antibiotics. You can adjust, pause, or cancel your membership anytime. They offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. Get your nutrition from nature with Wild Alaskan Company. And right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash friends. That's wildalaskancompany.com slash friends for $15 off your first box. wildalaskancompany.com slash friends please use that URL to let them know we sent you. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. We've talked a lot about Magic Spoon being a great way to experience the cereals you loved as a kid. But if you really want to relive the best parts of your youth, don't eat it as a cereal in a bowl with milk. Do what I do. Eat it by the handful, straight out of the box. This was the really fun way to eat cereal, and it's more of a college thing than something from my childhood exactly. But you know what? It's fun. It's transgressive. And it's still good for you. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Only 140 calories each serving, and it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You can build your own box or get a variety pack with available flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. 
And now Magic Spoon is bringing back two super popular flavors, cookies and cream and maple waffle. They'll be back permanently. When these flavors were first introduced for a limited time, they sold out extremely quickly. I personally love maple waffle. It's what I've been eating straight out of the box recently. It is possible that at this moment, my hands smell a little bit like maple waffle, even though I washed them before I started recording. I don't mind this. It is making me hungry. If you are interested in Magic Spoon, go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident you'll like their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5 off your order. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. So you led the book with the story of Phil Collins at the Alamo. Well, you know, we actually just thought it was natural. It's what everybody says, that the best way <laughs> to understand the Alamo is through the stories of the British rock stars that are most associated with yes, it. Yes, of course. I mean, David, David Bowie, Ozzy Osbourne, and yes, of course, Phil Collins. What we do at the beginning is we use Collins and Ozzy as a playful way um, to show the two different ways to view historiography of the Alamo. Collins, as the world's leading collector of Alamo memorabilia, we suggest um, symbolizes traditionalism, uh, the traditional Anglo-centric narrative. Ozzy, whose role at the Alamo was brief, but telling, is, uh, uh, is known for having peed on the Alamo, or actually a statue uh, next to the Alamo in 1982. Uh, and we suggest that Ozzy symbolizes uh, what's called in Texas Alamo revisionism, which is the idea of more or less peeing on the Alamo <laughs> le- le- legend, if you, you will. You can say piss if you want. Like this is this is sort of a PG rated, you know, okay. uh, podcast. It's like right. piss on the Alamo. Um, so, just curious, uh, David Bowie. Oh, this is my favorite factoid in the whole book. Um, David Bowie was, of course, as everyone knows, originally David Jones. There was another David Jones in The Monkey, so he needed a new name. And one of his favorite uh, uh, TV shows growing up was, a, I believe, a two-year series on ABC uh, about Jim Bowie. And so David uh, Jones took the name, which he then pronounced Bowie. Yes, we can, we can just discuss British rock star. Well, sorry. I, I can go all day on this. <laughs> let's let's drill down a little bit on Phil Collins because I think you're right. Uh, 
his interest in the Alamo is really representative of what a lot of people like him, let's say, you know, white dudes of a certain age, uh, find inspiring and invigorating about the Alamo, which is the masculinity of it, right? There's this frontier masculinity that is, is just all over the story. But what's fascinating to me, and you lay this out in the book, is that women had a huge part in maintaining that myth of masculinity. Well, in fact, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we would be having this discussion if it were not for the several women who were absolutely integral to uh, preserving the the prevailing myth. And I don't know how much how much detail to go go into all this, but there were three. Um, in the late 1800s, the Alamo was basically a ruin. It was remembered, but the, the place itself was just nothing. And there was no, it, it was a ruin. Uh, there was, and there were no commemorative ceremonies, ceremonies or anything until two women in San Antonio teamed up. Uh, Adina de Zavala uh, was uh, the daughter or granddaughter of the first vice president of the republic. Uh, she was a school teacher, and she wanted to preserve the site. She had no money, however, and so she teamed with a woman named Clara Driscoll, who was among, if not the wealthiest woman in Texas at the time. And together, uh, over a period of years, they uh, essentially preserved the site. Um, unfortunately, they ultimately have had a fallout because Adino wanted something historically accurate. She wanted to make it look like it did. She wanted to preserve especially the long barrack where so much of the fighting had happened, where Clara wanted to turn it into a, a Taj Mahal of Texas, a, a beautiful park mm. built around the chapel, which is the building that stands there today. Funny, that's the building. Most people call the building the Alamo. That building that you go to, if you go to San Antonio, that's not the Alamo. That's a church that was one of several buildings that lined a huge open-air plaza. It's become known as the Alamo colloquially. Anyway, the two women ended up in a massive fight and just hated each other until the end of their days in the middle of the 20th century. But because of their interest and because of the certain viewpoint, I, I suppose, that Clara brought more than uh, De Zavala, yes. uh, they wound up perpetuating this specific myth. Well, it right? was Clara's victory over Adina really that enshrined this this Anglo-centric narrative. I mean, the only story Clara Driscoll wanted told was the most historic, uh, historic um, story possible, the, the most heroic story possible. And under Clara's um, supervision from the 1980s to her death, I want to say in, 19, in the 1940s, you know, the, the Daughters of the Republic of Texas did exactly that. And it was also Clara who really did more than anyone in taking this from a fairly obscure Texas thing to a national thing. Clara Driscoll, because of her, in large part because of her wealth, was very active in national politics, including democratic politics. Uh, she actually had Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt down um, for one of the, I think it was in 1836 for the, the sesquicentennial. 1936? 1936, of course. The, no, yeah. excuse me, the centennial. Um, and so I, be, I believe Roosevelt was the first or certainly among the first American presidents. And that's, that's really what, that was the beginning of when you see the Alamo going from being this regional thing to a national and then an international thing. You mentioned three women. The third is Amelia Williams, who was the first academic to write about the Alamo. 
And um, it's, she has such a great personal story. I just hate to end up Aussieing all over her <laughs> uh, because she was a, you know, she was a, a well, history is complicated. She was a middle-aged um, school teacher who came to UT university of Texas um, to get her master's and then her PhD for which uh, she was urged to, to put together the first um, academic, you know, dissertation level um, examination of the battle. She did an amazing job trundling around uh, Texas in a Model T, gathering papers and maps and photos and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, certainly many of the things she gathered were um, of use and helped preserve the history. The problem was that the narrative that she advances in her dissertation is, is the classic Anglo-centric narrative. It is the one that basically comes out and says that the Mexicans were no good, do-for-nothing, smelly, you know, that type of stereotype, and that the Americans were bringing the civilizing influence of American pride. It was this level of BS. And this is circa, I want to say, 1931 that her dissertation came out. And, you know, but yet it was so definitive that, um, in part because UT was so dominant in, in the study of Texas history then, that really most of Williams's um, assertions were not challenged really until the first, you know, outsiders started doing rigorous research on this, you know, 30, 40 years later in the 60s and 70s. So, yeah, women, um, you know, had an incredible role to play, not in necessarily the fighting of the wall, but the preserving of the idea, the preserving of the myth. It's an interesting parallel to the way that it was women in the South-South who helped preserve uh, the myths about the Civil War. Well, and same thing happened in Texas in that in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, it was widows in large part because they 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 couldn't go into traditional commerce or even academia back then. So this type of thing, remembering their menfolk, was not only an avenue open to them, it was an avenue that men and governments and universities wanted. It was one of the few societally approved and accepted roles for women in the late 1800s. And so while it's always, we always talk about women preserving the lost cause myth in Dixie, in fact, they were just as important in preserving the Texas creation myth, the Alamo myth in Texas. And there's a lost cause element to Texas history as well. I, I, we, we sort of mentioned it in talking about whether or not the Texans uh, were fighting for freedom at the Alamo. One of the things I remember learning in Texas history was that Texas wasn't really a slave state. It was oh. kind of like it didn't really count as a slave oh. state. And also, it's not really the South. It's the, it's Texas. Do you remember this? I, I have very vivid memories of this. You are... I, I like to think Anna, that I'm, I'm not a man that has buttons to push. You're pushing so many buttons for me right now. Uh, look, I, I have to say, first off, the only thing I remember about my seventh grade history class is I remember the classroom and I remember the coach, Coach, coach Simmons. Uh, a very nice man. I don't remember anything that I was taught. However, talking to other people, I do have a sense that what you're saying is largely correct. This idea that Texas was not a slave state it, it, it is such balderdash. Uh, to use an antiquated term. The fact is the Republic of Texas, its constitution, its laws, were, uh, we argue, and I think this is defensible, the single most militant slave state, slave nation 
in recorded history. It had things in it in the Constitution, such as there, that even the Confederacy didn't have the idea that there was no such thing as a free black in Texas. If you were of color, if you were if you were black in Texas, you were a slave. So don't get shipwrecked. You, you, you were going to be a slave. This type of thing. Look, by 1900, 60, 70 years later, the stink of the Confederacy, the association with slavery is one that a lot of people, uh, thinking people, are increasingly um, uncomfortable with. In Texas, you saw this in between 1900 and the, and the centennial in 1936. You saw what academics will describe to you as a really you know, organic and yet overt um, um, series, series of events and papers and books th- whose, whose idea was to sever Texas from the the awful old South and make it part of the West or the new Southwest. And by and large, it was entirely successful by the forties and fifties. Nobody's talking about Texas as part of dear old Dixie. They're talking about Texas rooting, tooting, shooting cowboys. Um, And, you know, this was something that a lot of people in Texas wanted back then. If people are wondering how this happened, how you teach that, what I remember is, yeah, specifically Texas has a different, it was in, in the books. Texas has a different culture than the South. We are not really the South. There is a different ethos in the South. And Texas wasn't really interested in slavery during the Civil War. Uh, Texas fought in the Civil War in order to fight for states' rights. Well, this is all I remember this. This is like literally like the tests and stuff and, and ask questions and, about this. And the reason this notion lives so long is elements of, of it are truth. I right. would say Texas does have a different culture. We have a, of course a Western we Southern culture back then. Not so much. 1830s and 40s. It was it was Southern until independence. And, you know, we come up against, we, you know, we're the only Southern state with a Native American frontier, an active frontier. So there, there is a different culture. But the idea that slavery so, somehow wasn't important to Texas is just crazy talk. The only reason Texas exists is because of slave labor. It's the only reason whites came. They wouldn't come without it. And they fought like hell bureaucratically and then with bullets to keep slavery. It was the key to the Texas economic model. We'll be right back with more from Brian Burroughs, co-author of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, in just a second. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Off the top of my head, what interferes with my happiness? Other people's unwillingness to take basic health precautions. A state government that refuses to be proactive about those precautions. Having to be okay with only controlling what I can control, which doesn't feel like much, but it is something. Practicing acceptance. What are you struggling to accept? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment and begin communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. Send your counselor a message at any time and get quick and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions without ever sitting in a waiting room. BetterHelp thrives on matching great clients with great therapists. So if you need to change, you can do it for free. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. 
Counselors from BetterHelp may offer expertise that is not available in your area. You can find someone who specializes in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, or trauma. Anything you share is confidential, and you can visit their site daily to view new testimonials. BetterHelp has been so successful, it is recruiting counselors in every state. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash friends. Join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Sakara. It is now the perfect time to savor everything in your life, especially what you eat. Staying healthy is important, but so is actually enjoying your meals. Sakara offers nutritious meals without sacrificing taste. Sakara focuses on your overall wellness, starting with your diet. Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful plant-based ingredients designed to minimize sugar cravings, boost your energy, improve digestion, and make your skin radiant. With chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, Sakara stays on top of nutrition science to maximize health and maximize glow. It is delivered fresh to your door anywhere in the U.S. To supplement your nutrition, Sakara also offers daily wellness essentials like herbs and supplements. Sakara has been praised by Vogue, the New York Times, and more. It is by far the best meal delivery service I have ever experienced. Everything is delicious, filling, and energizing. As a matter of fact, if I could, I would eat Sakara for every meal. And right now, if you would like to try Sakara, they are offering our listeners 20% off their first order when you go to sakara.com slash friends and enter code friends at checkout. Again, that's sakara.com slash friends and enter code friends at checkout. We thank Sakara for sponsoring this episode. So we've gotten into Texas history, seventh grade Texas history. I've always enjoyed telling people about the existence of this year-long course that that I think we might be the only state with. I thought so too. Someone in Maryland told me they have it too. So I can't. Okay. I thought for years we were the only ones. Well, I've been bragging about it for years. So I'm just going to continue bragging about it because I'm a Texan. Um, And it is basically an indoctrination program of sorts. Uh, at least it was up until I was in school in the eighties. Right. And I have these vivid memories of being taught about the war between the States. Texas is not a slave state. I can't remember the modern stuff. Actually, a lot of LBJ, just lots and lots of LBJ and Lady Bird also might've done the whole like sec, like last quarter of the class was LBJ and Lady Bird. What is the Alamo? Uh, taught as in Texas schools today? Well, it, it, it is difficult to generalize because as, as we learn talking to a lot of different um, teachers and students, um, there are, you know, there are those perhaps in small towns, perhaps a little bit more in West Texas who emphasize the traditional narrative uh, more than others. We've talked to some Texas, te- uh, Texas teachers who you might describe as pr- progressive in urban areas that teach the importance of Tejanos, uh, that may allude to slavery. It's hard to generalize. There are state guidelines. In fact, it is actually the law of the land that we must, that, that teachers must uh, teach that every uh, uh, defender of the Alamo was, quote, heroic. That's one of the nuttier things. 
Um, uh, but, you know, I think there is a certain variability in what's taught. But in the end, what matters is, and, and I can imagine if, if, if somebody is sitting there in Connecticut or Michigan saying, okay, Anna, you're kind of losing me here. Why does any of this matter? You may not <laughs> understand, but you may not understand that every time you think Texans are crazy, Texans are, I mean, they've got, the, their politicians are, you do not understand that at the basic core of Texas identity. And yes, there is a Texas identity. I don't know that there's an Ohio identity. Sorry, Ohio. I don't know that there's a South Dakota identity. But at, at the core of Texas identity is this idea of Texas exceptionalism, which mm -hmm. is the idea that we are not just a little, but a lot better than the Rhode Islands and the Delawares of the world. Why? Well, we, we were our own country, goddammit. That's the main thing. Oh, I used to say own country. That, then during this, I learned, I learned that the cooler thing to say is we're the only state that defeated a foreign country in its own war. And there you go. And, oh, yes. And, and then became a, uh, our own country and then chose to merge our country with the U.S. That's the way you put it in as at the highest level of Texas identity speak. <laughs> but this all comes out. I think it manifests itself in a political culture as well as a, a, just a culture culture in which Texans do strut around, I think, a little bit chesty. I, I mean, male, not female, obviously, a little, a little kind of full of ourselves, a little braggadocious. These are qualities that have been associated with the state going back 100 years, and they are all firmly rooted in this Texas creation myth built around the Alamo. That's why, and I'm not trying to change the subject, that's why we have gotten such shit for, 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 for this book. Um, I just want to validate how right you are about with my experience being a Texan, even Austinites are Texans. I mean, liberal liberals act this way too. Yes. That's, that's the point I want to make is that don't go around insulting Texas in, fr in front of somebody from Austin, right? Like that person may vote very differently than the rest of Texas, but if you insult Texas, they're going to respond like Rick Perry would. I mean, it, it's it's kind of, I mean, it's a result of all that indoctrination. I read somewhere, and I'm not going to stand by the statistic, that Texas is one is like the state with the highest rate of like books about itself and the highest rate of like buying memorabilia about itself. I don't, I can't, I can't validate that for sure, but I will tell you in publishing, yeah, it's the only it's the only state in the country where if you say that they you want to write about, they're like, OK, because <laughs> they know Texans, Texas, Texans write, read books about Texas. If you go in any anyone who's lived here more than 10 or 20 years, I guarantee you they've got a bookshelf with just Texas books. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a thing. As we are speaking, I want people to know you are wearing a T-shirt that has Austin on it. Right. Austin. And FC I have soccer, behind yeah. me a blow up of a baggage tag from the Austin airport. Oh, mine's, e mine's even worse. I and have a, I have a flag over there that I'm not going to turn the camera. For. <laughs> I, ha it, I have a guest room in here that is every picture of eight or nine or 10 is a Texas map or a, a Dairy Queen or something. My, my, my grown sons now call this the Texas dad's Texas room. And we probably shouldn't stay too long on this, but the only other comparable kind of pride I've ever seen is like maybe New York City specifically. Or with your university. 
Yes. Um, yes. It is. It is. Yes. The thing about Texas is it's a little bit like belonging to a fraternity, a sorority, or just a university. It becomes your team. So we've we've really, I think, gotten people clear about how how important Texas is to Texans, right? It's it's it is that's incredibly well put, yes. So maybe this will help people understand why the battle over the Alamo history has bubbled into like gigantic form in Texas politics. Like, you know, careers are made and lost well because uh, of the Alamo. Yeah, we, you know, let's make clear this this book is meant to be, it is not a political book. It's meant to be a fun, accessible um thing uh, a, a set of new ideas for those who are open to new ideas uh turns out not everybody in texas is we knew that um but the 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 pushback the gust of pushback that we've gotten frankly i didn't see coming mm. part of this was just the timing we came out at a time pure coincidence where the governor uh, is you know has they're, they're passing a bill in the, the legislature you know saying things that you know you can't you can't teach about slavery uh, uh, to do with the uh, the revolution and then you know we got a certain amount of pushback early on but things really exploded when we our big publicity event in a time where you don't have that many publicity events right now because of COVID was at the Texas the State History Museum here the Bullock in Austin beautiful uh, museum if you've never been. You know, we had something like 400, 500 people that that night and earlier that week, um, a conservative think tank in in the state started calling for state officials to cancel us, that this was anti-Texan, that it didn't, that these ideas didn't deserve to be floated at the state museum. And four and a half hours before we were supposed to go on our our Zoom call for this, um, the lieutenant governor uh, caused the museum to 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 back out and the event was canceled. and that. I mean, actually, you know, it, it, it turned us overnight from guys who wrote kind of what we think is an interesting, fun book on Texas history into these paragons of First Amendment, you know. Well, you were not- almost canceled. Ryan, my condolences. You were canceled. You were literally canceled. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and suddenly we, it became all about t- politics. We're getting mm-hmm. editorials written about us and the Times of London, and all these, everybody. And, you know, the three of us who wrote this book, some of us are more comfortable fighting this fight than others just want to talk about Texas history. We all have our own take on this. But it's been instructive. I wrote this book having been back in Texas full-time for five years, having been gone in the New York, New Jersey area for 30 years. And I had not quite uh, understood how, shall we say, idiosyncratic our state's leadership had grown in my absence. And so uh, I'm getting my own new kind of education in uh, Texas politics. I was going to say that for future historians, I think one of the um, head-scratching elements of this story might be the degree to which Twitter is involved, Um, like politicians tweeting at each other about the Alamo. Yes. Ryan, why do politicians tweet at each other about the Alamo? Because it's faster and, and, and more widely read than press releases? <laughs> I kind of meant, what, what are they fighting about? Oh, oh gosh. Well, they're, they're, they're fighting over this. They're fighting over whether or not the, the, the take 
advanced, the revisionist take, advanced and reviewed and forget the Alamo is real, is right. And we have some older politicians who are kind of view this as some woke lefty attack on their cherished history. And let's just say, I am not, not that. Um, but it's, it is a way, I think, the politicians you see doing this, frankly, and I may kick myself for saying this publicly later, um, it's much less about what they're actually fighting it for than it is displaying to mm-hmm. their to their voters and backers that they're doing that. Yeah. You know, it's it's essentially a kabuki thing that's a, a, a lot about fundraising. In fact, the day after the lieutenant governor had us canceled, he went out and sent out a big flyer, fundraising flyer announcing what he'd just done. And, and look, look we, I should also say, as, as much as I can tell you that I am hurt, offended, and actually kind of horrified that a state government official could do this uh, clearly against the law, I have to, in the very next set, in the very next breath, admit to you that this was very, very good for books. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this this was, you know, the book exploded, publicity exploded. So, you know, I I, I have to I have to acknowledge that. We should not get any further without talking about uh, the Latino activism around not it's not around the Alamo. It's around retelling the story of Texas. Right. But the Alamo is a part of that. That's become a part of the battle. Well, it's become a huge part of the battle. Yeah, it's not just part of the battle. You could say it's the battle these days. Well, it is. Uh, Look, um, we are keenly aware that Chris and Jason and I are three middle aged Anglo guys are not the ideal messengers of Latino empowerment or to carry water for a, a version of history that has excluded the Latinos. But can I just say, nobody else was doing it. Mm-hmm. And we felt like not to do it was to ignore important things that needed to be put out there. One of the main reasons that Texans can't talk about this is Anglo-Texans have so little sense what the Alamo myth means, how harmful it is to Latinos, to Tejanos. They just don't understand it. They, do, they talk past each other. They, I mean, they don't talk about it at all. I mean, let's be clear. Like the, when you say no one else is talking about it, L- Latino activists have been protesting at the Alamo, have been creating art about the Alamo. I mean, they, they're, they've been trying to, to get people. To they have been, yes. That was the end of what I was going to say. Yeah. That, LULAC, which is kind of the, the Latino NAACP, has made the Alamo intermittently an issue since the late 80s. Um, and yes, there's been some art, there's been some stuff on the in- internet. But by and large, it's fair to say that the Latino viewpoint of the Alamo, which is part of the viewpoint that's in Forget the Alamo, has just made no headway in mainstream Texas media or culture. It's hard to find people who even understand they have a problem with it and then don't understand when you explain it to them. It's, it's just really hard. And part of this, and I, you and I are both Anglos, so this is hard to say, but part of this, no doubt, is the fact that Texas media and Texas politics is still dominated by Anglos, many of which just don't get it. So I want to turn again to my experience in Texas. This is the last part of the interview is your experience. (laughs) So I read this book in my home, which is in Travis County in the city of Austin. I'm five miles from the James Bowie High School. 
I am two miles from the David Crockett High School. And my street is just a couple turns off of William Cannon Drive. I got you beat. Okay, go, you go. I live on Bowie. Oh my God. I live on Bowie. And on the other side is Lamar. I live like, par- the two parallel streets are Bowie and Lamar. You want to tell people who Lamar is? Uh, Mirabeau Lamar. Uh, he was a, a famous Texas uh, politician and uh, uh, he fought at uh, San Jacinto and then uh, was a, a famous politician during the Republic years. And I will let people know the trivia answer to who William Cannon is. is he, he supposedly fought at the Battle of San Jacinto. Uh, he also was just a wealthy landowner around here, and he bought the land in the 1820s. So I'm guessing there might have been some people who were enslaved on that land. Just, well, just if, if you probably. go back, if you go back and look at the rolls in 1825, one of every four people, one of every four people in Texas was enslaved. So I bring this up not to brag, um, but to point out the challenge that might be faced if people wanted to go around renaming stuff. It's been tried. It's, it, this is another example maybe to illustrate how deeply the myths of Texas are woven into the identity of every single Texan, which is, I, I may be wrong about this, but I feel like we have more shit named after questionable people than even in the South. You, oh, oh, come on. This is not even a debate. Okay. All right. I mean, I, I, just, I, just, just, just take eight questionable people, whether they're slaveholders or slave traders in Texas. It's everywhere. Every city has the same. To be fair, we have a Seguin. We do have a Seguin. And there's nothing wrong with it. That's awesome. Um, uh, But, you know, Bowie, you know, slave trader. Um, Travis, no better. Uh, Stephen F. Austin, the father of Texas, who fought so hard for slavery. I mean, it's everywhere. And not not, not just streets, but schools. Oh, my God. I, I, I... I, I feel I've, I've never counted, but it's got to be hundreds, counties, towns, it, it creeks. It, I mean, it, it, the names are everywhere. It, it is part of establishing Texas identity. Yeah. So you said it has been tried. I, I, I would be pessimistic for almost any kind of change. We, we, point, but- out, we point out, this started like in the late 80s. I remember, I believe it's cited in the book, uh, NAACP picketed one of the buoys. It might have been a buoy high or a buoy elementary here in Austin saying that African-American kids should not have to attend a school named after a slave trader. That went nowhere. Um, basically, about every two or three or four years since, uh, uh, there's been an effort somewhere in the state to rename one of these schools. It's almost always a buoy or a Travis. And uh, there have been some compromises, I believe, a couple of schools that were going to be named got headed off, but I'm not aware of any that have, whose names have been changed. We have a Stephen F. Austin University. I mean, it's, it is. I'm glad you've, you've, you've sort of validated my observation because I was thinking about the South, the, the real South versus Texas in terms of all the naming conventions. And it's just, I don't, yeah, perhaps it's because a lot of Texas stuff was named after the Civil War. I don't know. It's just, it's just so deeply woven in. I'm a little pessimistic about changes being made. A lot pessimistic. I should correct myself. This whole thing though, this whole question of Texas identity that we're talking about, people just, people who aren't here may not understand that people in Texas do believe at some primal DNA level 
that we're about 10% more special than you are. And the way we, <laughs> and the way we remind ourselves and inculcate this in our children is not just seventh grade history. It's by naming every single thing short of the stars after people from the Texas Revolution. Yeah. Just 10% better? I don't know. I mean, it depends to, on whether or not you went to, to UT or Texas A&M, I think. Yeah. You know. Um, we're getting close to the end here, but I wonder if you wanted to say anything about sort of this the changes that that need to be made, could be made. Uh, are you hopeful for a revisionist history of the Alamo, at least? I am. Through? That I, would make a huge difference. I mean, we can't change the place names maybe, but. Look, let's be clear. Number one, we're not philosophers or professors. We're just, you know, age, aging journalists who wanted to write a book to bring something to attention. So we, we don't have some plan of action how we'd like Texas to change. That said, I think we had hoped that with Latinos poised to become a majority in Texas, that this was kind of time to maybe have a constructive civic dialogue about this, which has not, let's, let's be clear, this has not happened. And I, I, I have, we have a number, I've befriended a number of Tejano academics who have come up just in the last month or two and said, you know, we've been trying to say this for 40 years and no one listens to the voices of some Tejano professor um, and suddenly, because we did it in a book with a catchy title, it's become a thing. I actually kind of thought they might be pissed at us or irked. And in fact, they haven't. It's been, it's been really wonderful um, to think that we could maybe try to do something um, good. And let's, and let's be clear, this is not a zero-sum game. I don't believe, and I don't think any of us believe, believe that the only way to revise Texas history is to kill the heroic aspects. Uh, there are clearly things that could be called heroic here. I mean, I, there are ways where everyone can have what they want. History is by its nature inclusive and excluding, you know, just bringing some, some new ideas into it shouldn't mean that yours are obviated. Um, anyway, that's pretty far down the conversation. I think that demographics will probably have more to do with this than books. Uh, I think that in 20 or 30 years, the ideas that we're floating, which let's be clear, are you know built on the shoulders of academic work done by others before us, I think will be much closer to accepted by the political and cultural mainstream. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. This was an awesome interview. Thank you. And that is it for the show. This podcast is a production of Crooked Media, produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. Again, we talked to Brian Burroughs, co-author of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, co-written with Chris Tomlinson and Jason Stanford. Take care of yourselves. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. 
The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. With blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois.